tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Oi, as Job said to the Lord, oi, the show isn't even started. For the past half hours, I've been warring with computers, but... Uh, yes, yes, very direct. My, the voice in my head just said, is that a direct translation? <laughs> I, was, I, I oh, oh, Life is such an event. All right, let's pray. That'll help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful... Enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you sent the light of the Holy Spirit to enlighten the nations. By the light of that same spirit, may all of us have right judgment in all things and evermore rejoice in your comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's go to the big book on the coffee table. There's all this stuff, oh dear. The, oh, okay. I'll just I'll just ignore that computer altogether. That it'll, maybe it'll hurt its feelings and then it'll cooperate. I don't know. All right. This is from First John four seven through ten. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is of God. Okay. What what does that mean? That that love is of God. I mean, we don't talk that way anymore. We would say love is from God. Um, we don't use the, the 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 word of but that way, but I think that 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 um, I would I would almost translate it um, because love love belongs to God. That's kind of how I would translate it. It's you know oh dear, I'm I'm having and hawing already. We haven't even started, but there is something in grammar. Now pay attention. This is grammar. There is something in grammar called the partitive genitive, the partitive uh, genitive. In other words, um, take and drink of this. That's the partitive genitive. In other words, we're 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 indulging in part of something. Um, then there is the um, the possessive genitive. Whose book is it? Is the book of my friend. Um, we don't talk that way either, but but that would be the possessive. So this is neither. It's this is the preposition from. Uh, um, so this this love is from God. That's that's the exact translation. But I, I think it 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 implies that love belongs to God, which we don't really believe when you think about it. We think love belongs to me. No, love is from God. It isn't from me. Think about that for a minute. 
Love is from God. Now, again, the word here, of course, is agape. And I'm going to tell you again for the 853rd time at least what agape means, at least as I interpret it. Um, to the best of my knowledge, agape was a rather rarely used word in Greek. And the common words for love were eros and philia. Uh, philia is mutual affection. Eros is the love that desires to possess the beloved. We get uh, words like filial affection. Oh, no. Yeah, filial. Yeah, we, that, that's what it means. Oh, no, is that in English, does filial have to do with fathers and sons? Because the word filius is Latin. Never mind. I've gotten way off the track. But um, uh, philanthropy, all those... P-H-I-L, yeah, the voicemail said, are we getting credit for this? If you pass the quiz at the end of the show, yeah. But the P-H-I-L words in English have to do with mutual affection, philanthropy, uh, uh, Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, we can hope. Uh, so uh, eros, as I said, means the love that desires to possess the beloved, and from it we get the word erotic, though it... It wasn't exclusively in its origins erotic. It pretty much came to mean that pretty fast. Agape was a rare word, and the translators of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek used the word agape exclusively um, in the um, translation of Scripture because it didn't have the connotations of erotic or even fraternal affection, whereas the, the Hebrew word Ahubah does. It can mean sexual uh, love. It can mean um, mutual affection. It's, it's, a more, it's more like the English word, but Greek was very precise. So the rabbis chose a little, uh, the translators rather, chose a, a very unused word. And in classical Greek, as I understand it, the word agape meant an absolutely... Um, disinterested kind of love in the sense that were a child playing in the street I would not stand on the curb asking well who's responsible for this child um, <clears throat> um, is there a reward attached for, to saving the child shouldn't we call the Department of Children and Family Services no a normal healthy person will run out in the street rescue the child then they might ask all those questions but the normal instinct is to rescue that child and that would be, I think that's a demonstration of what the word agape means in, in classical Greek. It means a kind of innocent love. It meant to be well-pleased. Um, in other words, I'm not getting anything out of it. Eros, I get something out of it. Philia, I get something out of it. Agape, I put something into it. And so it came to mean, in Christian circles, sacrificial love. And I maintain that as a kind of intellectual exercise, you can almost take the word love out of the text in the New Testament and in the Old Testament and put in the word sacrifice. Well, let's do that. Uh, little children love one another. Little children sacrifice for one another. Uh, greater love hath no man, but that he lay down his life uh, for his friends. Love consists in this, then, not that we have... Uh, loved God, but he first loved us. Not that we have sacrificed for God, but he first sacrificed for us. So that's the idea, that the, the word agape implies sacrificial love. And what we're saying is that the, the very nature of God is sacrifice. God is sacrificial. You know, people think, boy, it'd be great if I were God. I'd just sit up there and do what I want and 
and I'd show people a thing or two, and I wouldn't have all this difficulty. Well, people ask all the time, why is life so difficult? Because God is sacrificed. Now, there'll come a time when the sacrifice is accomplished, when we stand before God's glory in heaven, but we will want to just melt into him as he wishes to, to belong to us. So read it in that context. Beloved, let us love sacrificially. Let us love one another sacrificially because sacrificial love is from God. Everyone who loves sacrificially is begotten by God and knows God. Hmm. In other words, uh, well, I love everybody. Oh, I just love every, except for that guy who, who blows his lawn sweepings onto my driveway. Uh, but everybody else, they rush. Oh, and the one behind me with the two dogs that are awful. But everyone, oh, and then of course that family that just will not cut their grass and, you see what I mean? That we think of love as this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. And it isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Sometimes there's no feeling at all to it. You know, love is not what I feel. Love is what I do. St. Thomas Aquinas, again, I tell you this a lot. As St. Thomas Aquinas defines love as, as um, uh, the, the, uh, as willing the good of another. And that isn't just, oh, gee, I hope you do, do well. To truly will the good of another means, if I can, I'm going to assist you to achieve the best you can. I'm going to help you to, to achieve the good. So this is a tough order. Whoever is without sacrificial love does not know God, for God is sacrificial love. Now, again, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but I think I'm right in this. In this way, the sacrificial love of God was revealed to us. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life through him. In this is sacrificial love, not that we have sacrificed lovingly for God, but that he sacrificed in love for us and sent his son as an expiation for our sins. St. John is defining love as the cross. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is obvious. It, this, it is not a warm, fuzzy feeling, though. And remember, I'm an old Pentecostal, and I love a good religious emotion. And sometimes these things are accompanied with great emotion. Again, emotion is not forbidden. That's not what I'm saying. But it isn't the substance of love. It may be the, 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 the product of love, but it is not the substance of love. The substance of love is giving our life to God and to one another, because that's what Christ did. You know, it's, it's, if you understand what the word agape means and, and, and you believe it and you see it, you see it proved on the cross, um, that's really something um, to, to, to think that, well, you know, I, I really love you because I feel good when you're around. That's really nice, but that's philia. And um, that kind of, I can't wait to see my girlfriend. That's Eros. They're gifts from God. Um, um, St. Augustine wrote and Pope Benedict the 16th reflected uh, St. Augustine in his, in his um, <clears throat> an encyclical that he wrote on love, but they talk about Christian eros. Amor in Latin really means it's closer to eros than is agape, and there's a place for it, especially in in marriage. Uh, 
but it isn't agape. God is not eros. God is not even philia. And, and it's fascinating um, that... Um, what's fascinating? I, I saw something shiny. Excuse me. It's fascinating that, that in the New Testament, all but about ten times... The word, the word eros is used and not the word philia. Again, I've shared this with you, but it fascinates me. Um, and I've had uh, um, real scholars tell me, oh, this, is, this means the same word. I'm enough of a fundamentalist to say, no, it doesn't. The Holy Spirit chooses word. I believe the Holy Spirit is, is the author of the scriptures through, certainly through human uh, agency, but nonetheless, um, the Holy Spirit chooses his words very, very um, um, carefully. And in the story and in, in the passage after um, the resurrection, when Jesus says to Simon Peter, uh, do you love me more than these? Jesus asks him, do you have sacrificial love, agape love for me? And Peter answers, you know, I have philia love for you. In other words, I love you like a brother. Second time, Jesus says, uh, so uh, you have sacrificial love for me, agape. And Peter says, I love you like a brother, philia. The third time, Jesus says, so you love me like a brother, philia. He doesn't use agape the third time. And Peter says, you know all things, Lord. You know that. I have philia, I love you like a brother. In other words, we're listening to the first confession of the first pope. That Peter is saying, I don't love you the way I should. And that's why it says in the text that Peter was cut to the heart. Because the third time Jesus said, so you love me like a brother. In other words, you don't have sacrificial love for me. And he said, when you, Jesus said, when you were young, you went where you would go. Uh, when you're older, they're going to take your belt and tie your hands and take you where you would not go. And by this... He indicated the death by which Peter would, would glorify God. Jesus was saying, you may not love me now the way you should, but you're going to learn. And he was referring to the crucifixion of Peter. So the ultimate banner of love is the cross. And anybody, anybody who really loves knows that. You know, um, we're so... Uh, shallow you know we're about as deep as a puddle in this day and age especially among us that i don't love you anymore we're getting a divorce you no longer will my good well i guess i don't i mean that's what we're saying i don't will your good anymore i will my good but i don't will your good um wow uh the uh, um you know, I've seen so many situations in which people make the, the marital commitment in sickness and in health. And then when someone gets sick or ugly or fat or has trouble, well, see you around. You know, that, that, that in the marriage vows, for rich or for poor, in sickness and health, for better or for worse, when does the love come in? In the rich or in the health and the better? No, the love comes in. It, when you stick to one another and work to, to make life better, when they're sicker, <laughs> sicker, poorer, and worse. That's love. Love is is, is a sacrifice. So what are you going to sacrifice your love for? Uh, a, a friend of mine who's an author said, uh, 
that uh, the question of retirement isn't what you're going to get rid of or what you're going to keep. It's what are you going to give yourself to? And I think that's the question of, of all of life. And I was so struck when he said that. But that's a question that's even wider. What To what are you giving yourself? Well, I'm giving myself to me. <laughs> okay, good luck with that. Isn't that amazing? Well, let me get to the gospel here. I just want to mention something. I always go a little bit... What's the word? Um, uh, what, the, what is it they call it? A, f- uh, a spittle fleck nutty? When people say, well, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes was really a miracle of generosity, that Jesus didn't do anything supernatural, makes me crazy when they say that. Because, you see, Jesus really was of the opinion that he worked a miracle. Read Mark 8, uh, 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 17. Let me go back to 17 here. Well, I even have to go back a little further. Let's go to Mark, um, 15. Okay. Uh, they're crossing the lake in a boat. Now the disciples, this is 14, Mark eight fourteen. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Watch out. Jesus cautioned them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. So they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Well, aware of their conversation, Jesus asked them, why are you debating about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Do you have such hard hearts? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you collect? Twelve, they answered. And when I broke seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. In other words, Jesus really thought he'd multiplied bread twice. <laughs> and, well, if Jesus was of the opinion that he worked a miracle, I'm going to stick with that. And those uh, revisionist preachers who don't like supernatural reality, well, you know, well... Generosity is frequently a miracle, but Jesus really seems uh, um, to to be saying that they don't need to worry about bread because he can make it out of nothing. Now, I suppose this, even in with this Mark 8 uh, citation, that one could still say, well, yeah, the 7,000... Uh, when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, maybe it was still a matter of generosity. But I really think Jesus is, is telling them not to worry about anything because he is the Lord of all things, supernatural. You know, I, I think that so often people talk about liberal and conservative, and uh, it's a complete misnomer that there are those of us who believe in supernatural reality and those of us who don't, for whom the gospel and the miracles are just sort of poetic representations of the visible world and i i don't believe that at any rate let us go to a break 888-914-9149 888-914-9149 we will be back in just a nonce at most two nonces the relevant radio studio line is sponsored by catholic order of foresters information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester you've got to accentuate the positive feeling 
Money to oh. Charm. Yes. There's another song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. I got a letter from, from somebody. Where'd the letter go? Oh, my desk is totally out of control. Yeah, this is a, a letter from um, Kathleen in Wheaton. Uh, it was an actual snail mail letter. By the way, oh, that's right. The letters, I the trumpet. Um, and Kathleen in Wheaton said, You've turned into a grumpy old German priest. Stop it. I'll try. I'll try. I, I mean, really now. Uh, you know, grumpy? Me? Well, yeah. All right. Thanks, Kathleen. And by the way, I've gotten a number of of very kind letters and, and, and that sort of thing. And and uh, the stack on my desk continues to grow, but I will I will get to it. But I, I just wanted to say thank you for so many Christmas greetings. All right. Where was I? All right. This is uh, a letter from a fellow named Dennis in Oshkosh who uh, says uh, um, he got a text from a priest friend of his. I know that the Jews pray often saying, may it be your will, Hashem, Hashem, meaning the name, as an altar boy. Oh, well, this is, that's a different thing. Yeah, the, the idea of the name, uh, the name of Jesus, it's a, the, the idea of the name. We, I talked about that yesterday, uh, the authority uh, of, of um, th- that word, I always translate it, um, is authority, or almost always, that that it means authority, and the the, the Jews will not say YHWH. Um, they will not address God by that sacred name, and I, I find it very hard when when people take it glibly. Now Benedict the Sixteenth said, "When you're doing scholarly stuff, okay." But not when you're uh, just sort of, well, um, uh, talking. You know, I remember there were all these songs. Da da, I know you are near. It, those I found those songs to be offensive to to my Jewish friends, and so I, I kind of changed that. But in scholarship, you can use you can pronounce Y H W H. I still get a little hinky about it. But what they do instead of saying uh, uh, pronouncing Y H W H, the sacred name, they they. Pr- call him Adonai, which means Lord, which is very significant for us, because when you read in the text of Scripture, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say that Jesus is God unless they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, that, that, that a Jew looking at that would probably read it that way, uh, a Jew at the time of Christ. So uh, they only use the word Adonai when they're addressing the Lord when they're praying. And when they're talking about God, they talk about Hashem. They'll also say Shmaim, which means heaven, as in heaven forbid. But they'll say Hashem uh, when talking about God in the third person. Well, Hashem willing. Uh, Rabbi Lazowski, uh says that all the time. He won't even say God. He says Hashem. So um, <clears throat> at any rate, so very interesting. We talk about the holy name that that name, which is above other names, is Jesus. And Jesus is, of course, a combination of YHWH and the verb to save, that that YHWH, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saves. Well, um, this is another thing that I want to, uh, another third real thing I'm going to jump into. Also, as an altar boy in the mid to late 1960s, I was told the vigil mass on Saturday afternoons and evenings was promulgated for people who had to work on Sundays, police, firefighters, doctors, nurses, and the like. Yeah... 
he says, was this true? Yeah, that was mentioned. But there's another priest who said the vigil mass on Saturdays did damage to Sundays. Now, it's very interesting. The Eastern Church will not um, um, say mass on, on anything but Sunday morning. When I was a boy, mass, except by special permission, was only on Sunday morning. And uh, this was a concession to those who had to violate Sabbath, uh, Sunday treated as a Sabbath, uh, unwillingly, who had to work. And I think that really is why it was done. Now it's become a matter of convenience. I call it the, uh, um, you know, the, the matinee mass, you know, you know, get grandma home, <laughs> get grandpa in my situation. Yeah, it's cheap. The voice I just said it's cheaper. Yeah, get the old folks like Father Simon to mass early so they can get to bed, get the early bird special and get to bed. Let's get it out of the way. That's what it has become in many places. Let's get mass out of the way. And so in that sense, uh, it, it It is, I think, unfortunate. However, you must understand that for Saturdays and Sundays, we revert to the Jewish notion of the day. The day starts for Jews in the evening, because in the Bible it says it was evening and morning the first day. So the day starts at night, when about an hour after sundown. And... <clears throat> We still do that. Like if you look at the office, the divine, you know, the, the liturgy of of ours, the breviary, the divine office, whatever we call it, we're calling it. Uh, you have first first uh, vespers of Sunday, which is on Saturday night, uh, and then you have second vespers of Sunday, and you have night prayer one and night prayer two. So Sunday begins on Saturday night. So there is that kind of uh, historical and biblical precedent for it. But I do think that um, if my attitude is, I want to get it out of the way, well, that's not a good attitude. But uh, if I think it is not a bad thing uh, to fulfill your Sunday obligation on a, on a Saturday night, if you are going to really dedicate Sunday to spending that time with your family and uh, in, in the pursuit of family life and the faith, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing to, you know, uh, just, just spend, you know, Sundays with faith, family, and food. Um, but m most of us, Sunday is the day we can get all sorts of stuff done and we can go to the store and the dry cleaner and all that and get stuff done. So I really do believe that, that a very important part of the renewal of the church should be renewal of our commitment to Sunday rest and, uh, the sanctification of Sunday at any rate. So I hope that helps. I don't know. Just some thoughts on on your letter, Dennis. All right, let me let me see. Well, let me look at the time here. We're doing fine. We're doing fine. Okay, I got one here. If my computer will allow me to see it, can I have a mass said for a deceased Jewish friend? Of course you can. <laughs> Why not? You know that uh, you know we have very strict rules about these things, and I don't think God does. You know that I love what C.S. Lewis says that uh, he puts in the mouth of the devil the idea that God is such a sophist he will save someone on the save someone on the flimby, flimsiest of, of pretexts. So I do not think that uh, uh, this is a fellow named Joshua. I, Joshua, I would certainly. Uh, have mass offered for your friend. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I remember saying to a, a Jewish friend of mine that Jesus was the Torah come to life. In other words, the law. He was the, the first five books of the Bible come to life. And my friend looked at me and he said, I'd, I'd never heard that. And I said, well, he is. The Jesus is the Torah come to life. 
and um, I'm being poetic, but still, I mean, to love the law, to, you know, Orthodox Jews love Torah, they love the law, and by law it really means the instruction on how to live in the world, what God has said. We believe that Jesus is the Logos. He is the ultimate statement of God about his own nature, that, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that Jesus is the ultimate statement of God about his own nature. And the Torah was a statement meant to lead the Jews in how they should walk, uh, to lead Israel in how it should walk. So, you know, I would say if a person deeply loves uh, the Torah and the way of life that is godly in, 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 in Judaism, I think they're going to be kind of shocked when they recognize Jesus standing before the pearly gates and uh, realize that he's the law that they've loved all along. So maybe I'm being a little bit um, too poetic on this. I don't know. But I don't think there's anything wrong in having mass said for a Jewish friend who has gone to the Lord. All right, let me see. I think I can do one or two more here. Um, uh, this is a two-part question. I never understood why are we born in sin? Well, there, I thought children are pure and innocent. Apparently, you're not a parent if you think children are pure and innocent. I mean, God gives us this great gift of love for children because uh, they're an expensive luxury. I mean, children, and I, I often point out how, uh, you know, that, that now I, I, there's a, a, a doctor whom I very much respect, who's a gynecologist, uh, OB-GYN, you know, did assisted in deliveries and he doesn't like it when i say this but eh, i'll still say it children are born into this world in a world of one now my doctor friend would say no they have a they have uh their very crying is a reaching out to the other so i suppose he's right in that sense however uh, human beings do enter the world i think in a state of narcissism you know you you you, um, if baby at 3 a.m., you got to get up for work in a couple hours or maybe even an hour, and that kid is decides he's uh, going to howl in the nursery. And you go in and you do the little dipstick test. Now the diaper's dry. You try to feed the baby. No, the baby just wants mommy to hold him. Um, <clears throat> lives in a world of one. Doesn't matter that you, you got to put the bacon on the table. Well, lo and behold, I know uh, that kid, if he has a bottle in his mouth, a change of clothes, and mommy to hold him, he's fine. I know guys who are 60, 70 years old, they have a bottle in their mouth, <laughs> a change of clothes, and mommy to hold him, they're golden. Most of us never leave the position of fundamental isolation into which we are born. Uh, um, this, this, as my doctor friend would say, this crying out for others starts in a way that's very self-interested and it should grow and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But children are not innocent. They're just small, thank God. I, I, one of my earliest memories is I was so obnoxious. I was three years old and I was so obnoxious at my grandmother's funeral, you know, playing in the drapes, buying the coffin kind of thing that my parents decided they were not going to take me to the second night of the wake. It was back when two night wakes were, were done. And um, they, they, left my, they left me with my cousins, uh, Janice and Liz. And uh, um, I can still remember my, this would have been in 1953, I think. I can still remember my mother looking in through the glass window of the kitchen of my uncle's house. And 
I'm howling when I realized they weren't going to take me. And she just had this look of sadness on her face. She was abandoning her poor little baby, me. I remember the emotions of it. I was going to make them pay. That was my emotion as a three-year-old. I was going to make them pay for not taking me to the wake. It's as clear as a, as, as, as a bell in my memory. Now, children are innocent. No, I was, I was a, an original sinner. Uh, Bob Mumford, who's a, a, a Pentecostal preacher, uh, many years, he's, he's many years in retirement, but he said, you know, we're, we know how to, we learn how to lie before we learn how to talk. You know, that cry that brings mommy running to the nursery for no good reason, that cry of pain when you're not in pain. We we learn to lie before we learn to talk. Now, I may be a little cynical, but you love them anyway. I remember my mother often would say, I love you, now I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> she never did, thank God. But, uh, you know, the, this idea of children are innocent and all that. Uh, no, they're not. They're human, and they need conversion. And to the degree that they can experience God's love in us, uh, to that degree, they enter into conversion, I suspect. Well, then, contradictory, why do we let children make their first communion so young? If they're, if they're good and innocent and perfect, they should receive their communion immediately. In fact is, in the Eastern Church, they receive communion after they're baptized until they're seven, when we reach the age of reason and are capable of real sin. So that's, I think, why Pope Pius X wanted um, to lower the age for Holy Communion, because... Uh, the little original sinners that you love, your children, they need it. So I hope that helps. And that's for Lori uh, from South Carolina. All right, we're going to we're gonna go to another break. I'll come back with a word of the day. And uh, we'll take your phone calls at 888-914-9149. Thank you for being tolerant. Oy. Okay, let's go to Word of the Day. The Word of the Day is a rerun. I don't know that I explained it well enough, and it's something that, that is so important, and I, I think I need to really explain it. Metanoia. I talked about it yesterday. It is the Greek word for repentance, both noun and verb. And when you see a word, the N-O-O-S, N-O-U-S words in Greek, noose, it doesn't mean a thing around your neck. It means understanding, mind, uh, um, awareness. And meta is a preposition which can mean to go beyond. Uh, so what it really means is um, the renewal of understanding, a new understanding. Repentance is a new understanding. And think about it. The uh, um, understanding precedes action. If I know the bridge is out, I am not going down that road unless I'm a real idiot. And uh, this is the kind of guy who is speaking to you now. I have actually done this kind of thing. 
I was in France trying to find the remains of the old monastery of Cluny, and I was with a very dear friend uh, uh, who had been a monk for many years and uh, ran the soup kitchen at St. Thomas, and um, he had recently had back surgery. <laughs> I should really repent of this, but I, I I knew where we wanted to go. It was right down a road. It was heavily wooded, but you could see through this tunnel of trees, and the sign said road out. Nonsense. I could see the road we wanted to be on right through that tunnel of trees. And so I proceeded in, and there were potholes the size of, of well, small tanks. And this poor guy with his back, recently operated on, and I'm banging away on this. If I see a sign that says the road out, I don't necessarily believe it. Why? Because I'm thick-headed. But and stubborn and and uh, convinced of my own correctness and lazy. It, it save time. I mean, there are all sorts of good reasons to take the road that says road out. Now let us get back to the idea of the bridges out. If I'm driving for something and I'm going at a high speed and I'm late, and I see the sign bridges out, and I say to myself, nonsense. I was just there this morning. The bridge is fine, and I zip along as fast as I can go on that road. I am going to end up in the water. Now, what if there is a fellow there waving a giant red flag, and I, I stop and listen, and he says, the bridge is out. Um, nonsense, it's not. Well, then I'm still going to go into the water. But if I listen to him and allow him to change my mind, oh, it really is out. Yep, it's really out. Let's go. I'll get in the car and I'll show you another way around. He has changed my understanding. You understand what I mean? Understanding precedes action. If I really think, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this, that we don't, we don't uh, do the bad. We do what we think to be the good. Oh, stealing that thing, robbing that bank is going to be good for me. No, it's not. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good for me. I, I'm choosing the good, but I'm choosing the good without listening to the Lord. You see, I'm thinking this is good for me, and it's not. So repentance is allowing God to change your basic understanding of something. I shared that story yesterday about how I stopped smoking big stinking cigars. My sister died, and I went and did her funeral. She died of cigarettes. And I just thought, this is stupid. Now, I could have said, nah, I'm, I'm, I get a lot of exercise and I, I take vitamins. I could have thick-headedly not, not allowed God to speak to me. But I, that was one rare instance in which I allowed the Lord to, to show me how something looked to him. Have that mind in yourself, Philippians, the second chapter, which was in Christ Jesus. Have that understanding, which was in Christ Jesus. So allowing the mind of Christ to fill you and thus change your very actions. You know, when I when I commit a sin, stealing, it's a good thing. No, it's not. Adultery. Yes. You know, I won't be lonely if I commit adultery. Oh, yes, you will. You'll be even more lonely. I can avoid punishment if I lie. No, no. You'll get caught in even more lies, and so on. The Ten Commandments are warning signs along the road. The bridge is out. <laughs> and if we repent, 
and allow God to reshape our thinking about the most basic things. You know, oh, love is such a wonderful thing. Well, I've just told you love is a horrible thing. <laughs> it's a sacrifice. Love is, a, is to embrace the cross. That's what love is. Oh, that's so negative, Father. No, it's the truth. Greater love than this hath no man but that he lay down his life for his friends. I'm sorry. That's what Jesus said. I wish it were otherwise. Jesus never said, love is a wonderful feeling in spring. He never said that. He said, love is the laying down of life for one's friends. Uh, the cross is love. And I wish it were otherwise. And, you know, it's taken a long time for God to convince me of almost anything. But allowing God to convince you that he's right and you're wrong. You know, my favorite theologian, the Reverend Billy Bob, says, God has this problem. He thinks he's God. And I thought, yeah, 99% of the spiritual life is just learning lesson one. God is God and I'm not. If you can get that through your skull, then uh, um, you can begin the spiritual life. So uh, repent, repent, allow God to change the way you look at the most basic things, glory and money and love and power and truth. All of these things that we learn the definitions for which we learn the definitions of the world, we have to unlearn what we've learned in the world and learn what the Lord has said. All right, let's go to phone calls. Etienne is ringing. Whom do I have on the phone? Tim from California, what can I do for you? Hi, good morning, Father Simon. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry, Merry, Happy, Happy, Merry. Go on. Thank you. Um, my question is, what is the most accurate translation of the original language that the Bible was written in? There isn't one. There really isn't. I get asked this question constantly. Um, <clears throat> if a translation is good... Uh, it is going to be uh, outdated in two years because our language changes so fast. I, I wish I could could be, you know, I, I would say the New American Bible is a good one. It's the one we use at Mass. That is the one we use at Mass, isn't it, dear voice in my head? New American, I always get confused. Yeah, New American Bible, that's a good one. It's not a bad translation. But, you see, it's almost impossible to ac accurately translate from one language to another. Uh, basic words... Okay, there's the same sometimes, usually, but but uh, the small, for instance, uh, Spanish and Portuguese are not very intelligible mutually. You can manage a conversation if you speak one language or the other. 80% of the vocabulary is exactly the same, but the important words, like in Spanish, thank you, gracias, in Portuguese, it's obligado. What? Obligado. Ob I'm obligated. Uh, asking a basic thing like, where is the bathroom? it's complicated it's 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 very hard to translate from one language to another that doesn't mean you shouldn't read the bible but uh new american bible is the one i would start with i like the jerusalem bible not the new jerusalem bible i like it for the notes the translation isn't that great i think the navarre bible is very good um probably one of the least good, but one of the most, be say that again, the Revi Revised Standard is decent. They're all decent. But what you do is you get one Bible and read it, and then when you're finished with that one, put it on the shelf and get another translation. And I always go to uh, a site, there are so many sites on the web uh, that you can 
look up the text of scripture and look at the Greek word. I, I often use now don't anybody listen, I'm just I'm just sharing this with one person. I I use Bible Hub sometimes. That's a, makes you an instant scholar. So that's what I would do. But uh, there's no exact translation. I, I wish there were. Learn Greek. It's not that hard. Every three year old in Athens spoke it at the time of Christ. And I'm I'm being facetious, but it, it is you can learn enough Greek. So uh, and I would I would suggest uh Oh, Bill Mounts, uh, beginning biblical Greek, which is produced by Zondervan. That's you know, it's it's if you're a real Bible nut, that's that's the way to go. Learn a little bit of Greek, and uh, it's easier than you think. I don't know if that helps. Does that help at all? No, that does help. And I actually had two years of biblical Greek in high school, so um, and, but it's been a while. But I'm sure I could pick it up. You again. have no excuse. <laughs> Bible Hub, go to Bible Hub. Look up you look you look up a text and it's a piece of cake. You have enough Greek to muddle through that. I do. So so do you. So uh, every man a scholar. Yeah, why not? You know, and you can really learn. You know, it's a slow process. I think Scripture is better read slowly than fast. Uh, uh, sometimes. So well, I hope that helps, and I hope you're. You're, you develop a new hobby of trying to muddle through, like I do, a text in Greek and Hebrew. It's not, not too hard. Well, thanks for calling. Anything else I can do for you? No, that's it. Thank you so much, Brother Simon. Have All a right, great day. All right. God bless. And thank you too. Thanks so much God for bless. listening. Who do, we have, who do we have now, voice in my head? Michael. Michael from Bayonne, New Jersey. Are you with us, Michael? Yes, I, I am, Brother you? Simon. Good, thanks good, a lot good. for taking my call. A uh, quick question, and it's my understanding that the uh, Vatican wants the U.S. bishops to have a common age for confirmation. And it's my understanding that the U.S. bishops can't agree upon a common age, and each diocese has their own separate rule, mm-hmm. own separate uh, age. Now, of course, I'm, I'm in my own parish, I'm, I'm, I'm involved with RCIA, and I do know mm-hmm. that if you're an RCIA candidate, of course, you know, you study for a, a year and a half or what have you, then you, you attend the Easter Vigil Mass, and of course the, the form is baptism, and then the pastor will confirm you, and then, of course, you receive Holy, First Holy Communion. So my question is, it's twofold. Number one, you know, why can't the bishops get together on a common age? And number two, uh, you know, like, wouldn't, don't you think it might be a good idea to try to, you know, to maybe change confirmation to maybe the second or third grade and then do um, first hold the communion one or two years later? Well, I think that this question kind of opens up a, a bigger issue. It is... I think that most people think of Catholicism as kind of this lockstep organization, and we're not. You know, bishops have a lot of autonomy in their own diocese. Uh, Now, the Pope could say, this is what we're going to do, that's within his rights. But uh, um, one size does not fit all. Uh, um, and I, I, I'm kind of, you know, think that that's, that's as it should be, that, that, um, different diocese, you know, the Catholic faith is supposed to be the same throughout the world. Well, it is, the faith is, but the practice is different. Uh, uh, in the Eastern churches, they baptize, confirm and give Holy Communion to infants. Well, shouldn't they do it the way we do it? No, because this is what they do, and they have reasons for doing it. So uh, the the idea that, that uniformity would be kind of nice, that's a political idea. 
for the civil for civil justice. But in the church, the church is a family. That's how we're supposed to see each diocese as a family gathered around its father, the bishop. And uh, uh, that that if you're a parent, you know that, well, the run to the litter might need a little more of this and a little less of that. So it's 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 um, one size doesn't fit all. So I, I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer. Uh, we'd like it to be consistent, but different bishops have different opinions and hopefully they're forming their opinions not on their personal tastes but on what is best for the people whom they're serving so i hope that helps a little and i i doubt that it's the answer that one it's certainly not the answer i want but i hope it helps who have we got in the line now dear dear voice in my head mary from scottsdale what can i do for you mary Father, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, we are having a roundtable discussion at our parish about the important issues facing the Catholic Church today, and mm-hmm. I'd like to have your opinion on what you think is one of the most important issues facing our church today. The most important issue in the church today is the contrast between notional assent to the faith and the faith. In other words, are we converted to Christ or do we just say, yeah, this is all true. This is what I grew up believing. And yeah, have I given my life to Christ? That's the biggest issue possible because all of the rest of it is just sort of a political exercise. If we're not doing it for the love of Christ. And I think conversion to Christ is the big thing and it precedes everything else. Um, The rest of it is just window dressing. Uh, you know, that, that uh, things that seem so important are not that important. They do not take precedence over knowing Christ and giving him our hearts and our minds and our whole self. That would be what I would say. So I hope that helps. Um, if you answer. say Thank that you at so the much. meeting, well, if you say that at the meeting, they'll look like you've made an unpleasant sound. Trust me. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> odd thing. You know, uh, can, we got to know the Lord. If we don't know the Lord, why the heck is all the rest of this any use? Well, I hope that helps. Uh, who have we got now? We got a couple of minutes. Can I take one more phone call? We, Tom, we got a minute. What can I do for you? Yes. Uh, I'm 69 years old, devout Catholic, go to Mass mm-hmm. every week, go to confession. Uh, mm-hmm. How was the world populated if it started with Adam and Eve? They had children. Yep. How did their children go from there? And how did we get where we are today? Well, very interesting. We need to look at the scriptures for it. We can look at uh, uh, genetic studies uh, of, of uh, fossils. And uh, the human community was down to a very small group of people who seem to have lived for centuries in basically the same cave in Southeast Africa. That's the current theory. So this idea of, well... Brothers having relations with sisters, uh-huh, it happened. Uh, you know, that that this was before the law of Moses. And uh, um, how the world was populated, the basic way that everything's populated. And uh, people say, well, who did the Adam and Eve's children marry? They probably married one another. That seems to be the genetic heritage of human beings as recorded 